History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to Episode 18, The Professor, Part 2. In 1926, J.R.R. Tolkien met some other scholars at Merton College. Most were friendly and familiar faces, though there were a few new faces, One of those new faces was a young man whose friends called him Jack. Tolkien and Jack were wary of each other at first, but quickly found common ground in their love of academia. It wasn't long before they had formed a long and fast friendship. Oh, sorry, Jack is also known as Clive Staples Lewis. According to Humphrey Carpenter, the two men bonded over Norse mythology. Lewis had loved it since he was a teenager, and we all know of Tolkien's work with the subject already. They would meet often, sitting together and swapping stories and getting critiques on each other's work. Lewis would write about his friendship with Tolkien in his book, The Four Loves, saying, Those are the golden sessions, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk. Lewis goes on to say, Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. End quote. Indeed, this kind of male friendship seems almost inevitable given the tragedies that befell Tolkien's friend group, the TCBS, during World War I. With so many of his friends killed by artillery fire or by going over the tops of the trenches, survivors like Tolkien had to be looking for any way to return to the lives they led before the war began. Soon enough, the TCBS of Tolkien's younger days was was replaced by the group of friends who branded themselves as the Inklings. This and Tolkien's friendship with Lewis looked very much like the friendships he had cultivated before. The Inklings would meet together, read each other's works, and give their critiques and criticisms. Lewis seemed to have been worried that Tolkien, who, as we said in the last episode, was a perfectionist of the highest degree, would be offended by the suggestions that were sent his way by Lewis in particular. He didn't have to worry, though. Lewis soon found that Tolkien, quote, has only two reactions to criticism— Either he begins the whole work over again from the beginning, or else takes no notice at all. Naturally, with groups of friends like this, the conversations would sometimes dip into philosophical or religious themes. Now, Lewis had had some issues about his own personal faith in a deity, while Tolkien had been a devout Catholic since he was a small child. Talking about religious themes was difficult for Lewis. Though he had grown up as a Protestant, he could not see the purpose of Jesus Christ in Christianity and could not understand how Christ's death 2,000 years ago could be of any use in the here and now. Christianity was akin to a myth to Lewis at this juncture. On September 19, 1931, Lewis, Tolkien, and their friend Hugo Dyson went on a post-dinner stroll. Their talk soon turned to religion, and Lewis expressed the difficulties that we just mentioned to his two friends. He expressed his belief that Christianity was a myth, and that all myths were lies, even though they may be breathed in silver. Now, according to Humphrey Carpenter, Tolkien disagreed, and then Carpenter reconstructs the conversation that followed from the poem that Tolkien wrote about it after the whole thing. Carpenter places these words in Tolkien's mouth, saying, quote, We have come from God, continued Tolkien, and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Indeed, only by myth-making, only by becoming a sub-creator and inventing stories, can man aspire to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall. 
Our myths may be misguided, but they steer however shakily towards the true harbor, while materialistic progress leads only to a yawning abyss and the iron curtain of the power of evil. End quote. Tolkien's argument and Dyson's follow-up support had a profound effect on C.S. Lewis. Tolkien had to go home around three in the morning, but Lewis and Dyson kept the conversation going all throughout the night and into the morning. In a letter to a friend sometime later, Lewis wrote, quote, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity. I will try to explain this another time. My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a great deal to do with it, end quote. Meanwhile, Tolkien was composing the poem that we mentioned earlier. Titled Mythopoeia, the poem gives us some great insights into Tolkien's mindset as a Christian, a writer, and a myth enthusiast. It's a long and beautiful poem and definitely worth a read in its entirety. Here's a small portion of it from about the middle of the poem. Quote, The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and still recalls him, though now long estranged. Man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white, to many hues and endlessly combined, in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build, gods in their houses out of dark and light, and sow the seeds of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. End quote. This portion of the poem, I believe, speaks the most clearly about Tolkien's worldview. That line there about man being the refracted light splintered from the single white light calls back to a few passages in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. God is referred to as having light, such as in Isaiah 2.5. Then there's the Gospel of John, which uses the idea of Jesus being light numerous times, such as chapter 1, verse 9, calling Jesus the true light, and chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 9, verse 5, both of which tell of Jesus stating, I am the light of the world. We'll come back to this idea in a few minutes, but because I can't help myself, here's the ending of Mythopoeia. Quote, In paradise, perchance, the eye may stray from gazing upon everlasting day to see the day illumined and renew for mirrored truth the likeness of the true. Then looking on the blessed land twill see that all is as it is and yet may free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys Garden, not gardener, children, not their toys. Evil it will not see, for evil lies, not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes. Not in the source, but in the tuneless voice. In paradise we may look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure, they still will make, not been dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall, there each shall choose forever from the all. End quote. As we can see, Tolkien knew how to write and write well. He had been doing it well for quite some time, and not just for academia's sake. He had already been hard at work creating the bones of his as yet unwritten Middle Earth saga as far back as the 1910s. Now it is the 1930s, 
and amusing little characters have come to life in the Tolkien house to amuse his children. There was the character of Carrots, a young boy who had strange adventures in a cuckoo clock. There was Bill Stickers, who antagonized Major Road Ahead. There was Rover, a small dog who annoys a wizard named Samethus Samethides, which might be the most Dungeons & Dragons name we've dealt with on this podcast. And there was a character called Tom Bombadil, who wore a tall hat with a blue feather and dressed in a blue jacket and yellow boots. Tom Bombadil's adventures with the river woman's daughter Goldberry, Old Man Willow, and a Barrow White would eventually be published as a poem under the name The Adventures of Tom Bombadil in Oxford Magazine in 1934. For readers of The Lord of the Rings, this story seems a little familiar, doesn't it? His literary creations don't stop there. Letters from Father Christmas appeared for his children each holiday season, each delivered in fantastical ways. He wrote stories that would eventually become noticed after the success of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, such as Farmer Giles of Ham and The Smith of Wooten Major. There was even an attempt at contributing to the legends of King Arthur with a poem entitled The Fall of Arthur. But it wasn't until a summer's day, sitting by the window in his study, that things started to shift. He was grading some papers and, well, I'll let him tell you. The actual beginning, though it's not really the beginning, but the actual um, flashpoint was I remember very clearly. I mean, I took, um, I can still see the corner in, the, in my house in 20 North Moor Road where it happened. I got a enormous pile of exam papers there and uh, marking school examinations in the summertime is, a, is an enormous, um, very laborious and unfortunately also boring. And I remember picking up a paper and actually if I nearly gave an extra mark for it, an extra five marks actually, with one page on this particular paper was left blank. Glorious. Nothing to read. So I scribbled on it. I can't think why. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. I think that was eventually published in 1937. And here we finally are. The Hobbit. Certainly not the first bit of the Middle-earth legendarium that Professor Tolkien thought of, but the first of his works that would be received widely outside of his academic work. For those who have never read the book, or for those who have read it grudgingly, like my wife, here's a short History on the Side recap. <clears throat> In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and oozy smells, but a hobbit hole. Hobbit holes mean comfort, as everyone knows, and this particular hole was occupied by a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins who never had any, any fun, never climbed stairs, and never went on any adventures. Bilbo was so boring that you could tell what he would say to just about anything before you even asked him. That is until Gandalf the wizard comes by and vandalizes Bilbo's door, and then invites all of his rowdy musical dwarves to dinner. The wizard and dwarves eat a huge feast, but refrain from bending any forks or cracking any plates. After dinner, it's time for some dark business, which means it's time for the dwarves to sing a song about their lost home, a fearsome dragon and their plan to retake the Lonely Mountain. Bilbo gets a contract to help them, and is then whisked away without his pocket handkerchiefs on a crazy adventure. The group outsmart trolls, constantly lose all their food, meet and smell elves in Rivendell, get caught in a terrible rainstorm, and then get captured by the goblins of Goblin Town. They escape Goblin Town only for poor Bilbo to be separated from the group, find a ring, and possibly cheat at a riddle game with a murderous, hungry, coughing creature named Gollum. Smeagol? No, no, it's Gollum. Are you sure it's not Smeagol? Okay, Gollum. Pretty sure it's Gollum. Anyway, more adventures come after Bilbo loses his buttons and leaves paths in the forest. 
And in case you're wondering, never, ever leave the path in the middle of the forest. Finally, Bilbo and company meet a non-singing bard and then meet a big, ugly dragon in the heart of the Lonely Mountain. And after all of that, you'd think they would have gained something. But, well, you will see whether they gained anything in the end once you've read the book for yourselves. It's a classic. You should definitely read it and then read it again. And again. When you read it, it is good to understand that The Hobbit was meant to be a children's story, and it is much different in tone and pacing than the Lord of the Rings series, and feels completely out of place when comparing its tone and pacing to The Silmarillion. In fact, when the story was first sent to publishers George Allen and Stanley Unwin, Mr. Unwin gave it to his son Rainer to read and review it. Fortunately, young Rainer liked the story, and the first edition of The, of the Hobbit was published on September 21, 1937. Tolkien himself identified with his creation Bilbo. He stated once, quote, I am, in fact, a hobbit in all but size. I like gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmlands. I smoke a pipe and like good plain food, unrefrigerated, but detest French cooking. I like and even dare to wear in these dull days ornamental waistcoats. I am fond of mushrooms out of the field, have a very simple sense of humor, which even my appreciative critics find tiresome. I go to bed late and get up late, when possible. I do not travel much. End quote. <laughs> Within days of the book's publication, a review appeared in the newspaper. Humphrey Carpenter quotes the review in his Tolkien biography, stating, quote, All who love that kind of children's book, which can be read and reread by adults, should take note that a new star has appeared in this constellation. To the trained eye, some characters will seem almost mythopoeic. End quote. That reviewer was none other than C.S. Lewis, who would go on to give The Hobbit a glowing review. By Christmas 1937, the first edition was completely sold out. It wasn't long before talks for a sequel to this bestseller were begun. Unfortunately, the sequel to The Hobbit would be quite a while in coming. For starters, as we've said before, Tolkien was an absolute perfectionist, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting until he was completely satisfied with the way things turned out. Another factor in delays to the new book would be the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. In one of his several letters to his son Michael, Tolkien gives some of his thoughts on the war, saying, quote, People in this land, meaning England, seem not even yet to realize that in, that in the Germans we have enemies whose virtues, and they are virtues, of obedience and patriotism are greater than ours in the mass, whose brave men are just as brave as ours, whose industry is about ten times greater, and who are, under the curse of God, now led by a man inspired by a mad whirlwind, a devil, a typhoon, a passion, that makes the poor old Kaiser look like an old woman knitting. End quote. Tolkien is, of course, referring here to Adolf Hitler and comparing him to the old Kaiser Wilhelm II, who led Germany in the First World War. In the same letter, Tolkien goes on to say one of my favorite quotations that I've ever heard. Quote, Anyway, I have in this war a burning private grudge, which would probably make me a better soldier at 49 than I was at 22, against that ruddy little ignoramus Adolf Hitler, for the odd thing about demonic inspiration and impetus is that it in no way enhances the purely intellectual stature. It chiefly affects the mere will. Ruining, perverting, misapplying, and making forever accursed, 
that noble northern spirit, a supreme contribution to Europe which I have ever loved and tried to present in its true light. End quote. A ruddy little ignoramus. Man, calling Hitler a blithering idiot is just wonderful. Anyway, the sequel to The Hobbit saw more and more stops and starts over the next few years. Finally, on July 29, 1954, a good 17 years after The Hobbit was released, The Fellowship of the Ring was released by publishers Allen and Unwin. The Two Towers, the second book in the trilogy, would be released on November 11, 1954, and The Return of the King on October 20, 1955. Here's a clip of the professor reading one of his most iconic poems that appears in those novels. I cannot read the fiery letters in Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. The letters are Elvish, an ancient mode, the language that of Morgar, which I will not utter here. This in the common tongue is what he said, close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and the darkness bind them. There's only two lines of a verse long known in elven law. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. C.S. Lewis, ever the encouraging friend, loved the Lord of the Rings praising Tolkien for the sub-creation and gravitas the story contained. Others were not so kind. His peers at Oxford stated that now he had had his fun and needed to get back to some real work. But the ones who loved it, loved it, and sent fan letters asking questions of the professor and his world. But this newfound fame puzzled him. Requests for interviews were made and accepted. Fan letters kept pouring in, some containing pictures of early cosplayers dressing as his characters. Added to the stress of his new status was a new yet inevitable realization. Time and old age had caught up with him. By the time The Return of the King came out in 1955, Tolkien was 63 years old. In 1959, he retired from his long academic career, and in 1965, he was 73 and wrote, quote, I find it difficult to work, beginning to feel old and the fire d dying down, end quote. On November 22, 1963, Tolkien's friend Clive Staples Lewis passed away. Tolkien wrote of this to his daughter Priscilla, saying, quote, So far I have felt the normal feelings of a man of my age, like an old tree that is losing all its leaves one by one. This feels like an axe blow to the roots. End quote. Life went along peacefully for the most part after this. He and Edith moved to Bournemouth in 1968 to have both a more convenient house for their old age and to escape the constant stream of fan mail and house calls. It was in this time period that his thoughts turned back to the work that had remained unfinished for so long, the Silmarillion. Some of the earliest passages dated back to the trenches of the Somme in 1917. Finally, after all these years, Tolkien was working steadily on his most prized creation, and by the summer of 1971, he was making good progress. But all of that was soon to come to a screeching halt. November 29, 1971, was a dark day for John Ronald Rule Tolkien. His lovely wife, Edith, passed away. 
Tolkien, now 79 years old, would write in a letter to William Carter saying, quote, I am grieved to tell you that my wife died this morning. Her courage and determination, of which you speak truly, carried her through to what seemed the brink of recovery, but a sudden relapse occurred, which she fought for nearly three days in vain. She died at last in peace. I am utterly bereaved and cannot yet lift up heart, but my family is gathering round me and many friends. Quote. He wrote to his son Michael sometime afterwards, saying of Edith, quote, I met the Luthien Tenuviel of my own personal romance, with her long dark hair, fair face, and starry eyes and beautiful voice. And in 1934, she was still with me and her beautiful children. But now she has gone before Baron, leaving him indeed one handed. End quote. The next two years of Tolkien's life saw him receive awards for his lifetime of work, both as an academic and as a best-selling author. He was presented with a Commander of the Order of the British Empire at Buckingham Palace in 1972, and was also awarded an Honorary Doctorate of Letters from Oxford for his contributions to philology. On September 2, 1973, John Ronald Rule Tolkien passed away at the age of 81. He is buried with his wife, Edith, at Wolvercote Cemetery in Oxford. On the shared gravestone, accompanying the normal names and dates, there lie two extra words. They are a callback to two characters in the Silmarillion. The first lies under Edith's name and reads Luthien. The second lies under John's name and reads Baron. Baron and Luthien. Two simple names that tell an entire epic story of Luthien the most beautiful of the elves who forsook her immortality in order to love the mortal man, Baron. In the Middle-earth legendarium that Tolkien created, there was no higher love between two inhabitants of Middle-earth. But what of Tolkien's influence on our world today? Well, where would you like me to start? It's not too far off the mark to say that Tolkien popularized and possibly reinvented the fantasy genre with his fantasy stories. Numerous authors like Ursula Le Guin Terry Brooks, J.K. Rowling, Stephen King, George R.R. R. Martin, and Orson Scott Card have claimed inspiration from Tolkien's stories. The Led Zeppelin songs, The Battle of Evermore, Misty Mountain Hop, and Ramble On, drew inspiration from him, and some heavy metal bands borrow lyrics or band names from the Black Speech of Mordor or characters found in the novels. Of course, there was the Lord of the Rings film trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy from Peter Jackson that, I think, reinvigorated the stories a little bit, at least in the popular conscious and in pop culture. And in 2017, Amazon acquired the rights to make a Middle-earth TV show set in the time before the Fellowship of the Ring. Numerous astronomical items are named after the professor or his works, including asteroids 2991 Bilbo, 2675 Tolkien, 378214 Sauron, and 385446 Manwe. Charon, the largest moon of the sometimes planet Pluto, has a dark area on its northern pole that is unofficially named Mordor, and numerous points of Saturn's moon Titan follow this same pattern with names from different characters and places in Tolkien's Legendarium. Barely a glance at tabletop gaming systems like Dungeons & Dragons will reveal possibly more than anyone ever wanted to know about Tolkien's fingerprints on the genre. Early editions of Dungeons & Dragons included hobbits as playable characters, but these were quickly changed to the less copyright-infringing halflings in later editions. In 
They still keep traits mentioned in the books, though, living practical, good-hearted, kind lives, and have bonuses that reflect their bravery, luck, and stealth in the game. And if you've never seen Stephen Colbert geek out about his deep Tolkien knowledge, do yourself a favor and YouTube it. It's amazing. There have even been calls in recent years for Tolkien to be declared a saint in the Catholic Church. On September 2, 2017, the Oxford Oratory offered its first Mass with the intention of Tolkien's cause for beatification to be opened. It is well known that Tolkien's faith was highly important to him. In letters, he referred to himself time and time again as a Christian and Roman Catholic. Now, it would be easy to question the validity of Tolkien's spirituality and Christianity when you read his stories. There are wizards, enchantments, giant spiders, undead, angel-like beings, and other spirits that are definitely not in the Bible. So how does Tolkien get around this and stay true to his faith? Well, first, think back to Mythopoeia, the poem that Tolkien wrote for C.S. Lewis. In the poem, he writes of man as a sub-creator. In Tolkien's mind, stories and storytelling were a natural outpouring of the creative energy present at the moment of God's creation of everything. God is a creator, therefore we, his children, are also creators of a lesser or sub-order. Not only was this permissible in Tolkien's mind, it was our God-given right to be creative for good or ill, because we make still by the law in which we are made. In a letter to Robert Murray in 1953, Tolkien states, quote, I think I know exactly what you mean by the order of grace, and of course by the references to Our Lady, upon which all my own small perception of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity, is founded. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. End quote. Now, Tolkien has famously said that he dislikes allegory in all of its forms. In a 1947 letter to Stanley Unwin, Tolkien mused, quote, Of course allegory and story converge, meeting somewhere in truth, so that the only perfectly consistent allegory is a real life, and the only fully intelligible story is an allegory. End quote. He goes on to say in the same letter, quote, You can make the ring into an allegory of our own time if you like, an allegory of the inevitable fate that waits for all attempts to defeat evil power by power. End quote. So, if the Lord of the Rings isn't an allegory for Christian principles, but Tolkien himself says that it is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, where is the religious stuff? Now, we aren't going to cover everything there is on that topic, but we will hit a few of my personal favorites, and for that we'll turn to the book The Gospel According to Tolkien by Ralph C. Wood. In reference to the absence of overt religion in the Middle-earth narrative, Wood has this to say, quote, Yet there is a deeper reason for Tolkien's omission of formal religion in his book. He makes the mythical world of Middle-earth non-religious, among other reasons, in order that we might see Christianity reflected in it more clearly, if also more indirectly. Readers of the Silmarillion are not surprised to learn that a full-fledged theology lies in back of Tolkien's Hobbit books, and that it silently informs the Lord of the Rings. As Tolkien himself said, and now he's quoting Tolkien, the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. End quote. Okay. So it's more about symbolism than story. Where do we look? Pretty much anywhere, it seems. Wood equates the elvish waybread called Limbus 
with the Eucharistic wafer, and the Numenorians pause before eating their meals. And while he doesn't atone for anyone's sin, Gandalf lays down his life for his friends, only to be brought back to life robed in white. Men and elves are sometimes referred to as the children of Iluvatar, the supreme being in Tolkien's mythology. One big example is in the first chapter of the Silmarillion, called the Ainulindale. In that chapter, Tolkien describes the creation of Middle-earth by Iluvatar, essentially Tolkien's version of Genesis. Like the Genesis account, the Ainulindale speaks of creation as a process. Iluvatar creates using music, and it is a creation where individuals have wills of their own, opening up the possibility of rebellion and rejection of Iluvatar's plan. Such is what happens when Melkor, one of the Ainur, rebelled against Iluvatar's plan and introduced dissonance and discord into the song Iluvatar was composing. Instead of throwing it all away, Iluvatar incorporates it into the song and uses it to bring about his purposes. Another example of religious symbolism is in the first chapter of the Two Towers. There we find the death of Boromir, one of the nine members of the Fellowship of the Ring. Hearing the horn of Boromir, Aragorn races toward the sound and finds Boromir sitting up against a tree. Many orcs lay dead at his hands, but Aragorn can see that Boromir has been hit with many black-feathered arrows. Quote, Aragorn knelt beside him. Boromir opened his eyes and strove to speak. At last, slow words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I am sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lay there. They are gone. The halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. He paused and his eyes closed wearily. After a moment he spoke again. Farewell, Aragorn. Go to Minas Tirith and save my people. I have failed. No, said Aragorn, taking his hand and kissing his brow. You have conquered. Few have gained such a victory. Be at peace. Minas Tirith shall not fall. Boromir smiled. End quote. I love this scene. It's so quiet and impactful. Wood points out that this scene is reminiscent of a priest hearing a last confession. Aragorn refuses to let Boromir's last thoughts be of failure. And as Wood states, Aragorn absolves and forgives Boromir, and further points out the dead orcs as Boromir's attempt at penance. Boromir's smile lets us know that he has accepted the forgiveness that Aragorn offers. Finally, in The Return of the King, we get this exchange between Samwise Gamgee and Gandalf. Quote, noon, said Sam, trying to calculate. Noon of what day? The fourteenth of the new year, said Gandalf. Or, if you like, the eighth day of April in the Shire Reckoning. But in Gondor, the new year will always now begin upon the twenty-fifth of March, when Sauron fell, and when you were brought out of the fire to the king. He has tended you, and now he awaits you. You shall eat and drink with him. When you are ready, I will lead you to him. End quote. Okay, we have a conversation about dates. What's so special about March 25th? Well, let's turn to Tolkien scholar Tom Shippey and his book J.R.R. Tolkien, Author of the Century, for the answer. Shippey says, quote, No one any longer celebrates the 25th of March, and Tolkien's point is accordingly missed, as I think he intended. He inserted it only as a kind of signature, a personal mark of piety, 
However, as he knew perfectly well, in old English tradition, 25th March is the date of the crucifixion, of the first Good Friday. As Good Friday is celebrated on a different day each year, Easter being a mobile date defined by the phase of the moon, the connection has been lost, except for one thing. In Gondor, the new year will always begin on 25th March. End quote. Shippy continues, quote, One might note that in the calendar of dates which Tolkien so carefully wrote out in Appendix B, December 25th is the day on which the Fellowship sets out from Rivendell. The main action of the Lord of the Rings takes place then, in the mythic space between Christmas, Christ's birth, and the crucifixion, Christ's death. End quote. And that's where we will wrap up this episode of the History on the Side podcast. Now I know, we've barely scratched the surface of all things Tolkien and Hobbit related. Fortunately, there are a ton of resources on this topic, and lots of great podcasts out there to dive into. One of particular note that I find to be most excellent is the Prancing Pony podcast, hosted by Alan Sisto and Sean Marchese. They have a great first couple of episodes. I mean, all their episodes are pretty great. Uh, But those first couple of episodes I referred back to in preparing these last two of my episodes. So check them out. As always, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through the Facebook or Instagram pages, or by visiting www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.